Okay, it is Wednesday night on freedomslips.com, and as usual, it's time for the Bowen Rockle Show. And after a long-awaited return, we are scheduled to have Get Yourself Off the Tax Roll Steve on tonight with us. Should be along shortly. Uh, Rockle, how are you doing? Hey, I'm doing all right. It's It's been a crazy week. It's It's been crazy good, crazy like a fox, so... We got Steve. I was just talking to him, and uh, <laughs> what a time to have technical difficulties. So, without further ado, we're waiting for him. He may have to call in, but uh, we're going to pull him in. Is that Is this him? Maybe him. See if we can pull him in. The Skype here, and that Skype, that, that Skype room. Is that his number? Is. And folks, um, if you would like to um, ask a question, uh, uh, Steve said. Um, he's got about an hour and a half's worth of material tonight. So about somewhere halfway through the second hour, you can call in. Um, please hold your calls till then. Um, we've got a lot of material we want to get to in this um, very special Right. He event. doesn't He doesn't, doesn't know if we're going to get through it all. So tentatively, we're working with uh, a possibility of an hour and a half in to take some calls. So we're going to go all the way back to... Revolution, history of taxation, what it really means, and uh, we're trying to get a hold of him right now. So is that him? Steve, are you on with us? Hello. Hello, Steve. Okay. All right, so... We're looking for him. We're looking for him. Um, why don't you give us a, you know, you got a brief synopsis. There he is. You got a brief synopsis of... Um, you may have remembered uh, him from 10 months ago where we covered this material. And since then, um, you know, he's been helping people the best they can. Uh, I guess I guess there's still, you know, some questions as far as fundamental sure, um, issues. Fundamental know, issues. Understanding of how this all works and why right. we're not. To, no, number one, Steve's not an attorney. Steve, number two, Steve is not quote unquote. Uh, helping people in an official way, so he's been slammed with calls. We're going to respect that, and we're just going to have him share what he knows and, and uh, what he's been through, what he's involved in. So, can we pull him in? But essentially, uh, you know, if you go back and uh, search through the uh, Bono's Entertainment um, archives there on YouTube. Right, you or can, go to uh, get Rocco the... Vanzetti on Facebook, and you can see uh, how I've been putting up this, this promo and the old show, Seven Parts. You can get you can get all of that, but uh, we're going to update it, you know, so hence the show now, tonight. Well, Steve's getting his notes together here, folks. I suggest then you take a minute, go get your uh, notepad and... Um, uh, pen and um, get ready to take some notes. Uh, if you have some questions, write them down. We'll give out the call number here in a few. And you can always uh, follow up uh, with uh, Bono's Entertainment on YouTube and Rocco Vanzetti on Facebook. So those channels are open, those options. So if you don't get it tonight, uh, you can get it later. So we do have a Facebook follow-up. So a lot of views on that on that promo. So you know, in my mind, this kind of ties into some of the research I've been doing lately with the, um, you know, general welfare clause. You know, and how, you know, the, the corporations were supposed to be here to our benefit, not to our detriment. Um, right. But you know, you know, we can go into that more well, next well, week. Well, tonight, yeah, tonight we're gonna deal with issues that we can, uh, you know, put on admissions. We we can. Uh, talk about how they're not doing their job you know the the county assessor the county appraiser however whatever word they're using in, in your statutes uh, you are owed uh, like in Illinois uh, evaluation um, upon request you can ask the uh, appraiser you know I want evaluation how did you determine that property tax you're gonna come up with things like ad valorem tax that is the use the right of exercising a privilege. And then you got to look and say, well, am I exercising a privilege? Can I be in a tax on exercising a privilege? Since when is it a privilege to be living somewhere, to be dwelling 
on property. Now we're going back into what are God-given unalienable rights. So this is what we're, we're talking about. So he's getting ready. I can see him. Uh, I can yeah, see I'm here, guys. Okay. There you are. So we, we stalled long enough. So Yeah, you did well. You did well. <laughs> okay. Where do, where do you want to start, man? Well, um, I, I threw those uh, little notes over there to you. Why don't you grab them real quick? I got you, them. I got okay. Them. All right. We're good. We're good. Okay. So, so okay, we you, you were going to bring this uh, all the way back to pretty much, uh, I mean, the revolution. Let's go back to the beginning for for a bit, and so people can get an understanding. Because last time, uh, people missed the boat, and and we're going to um, go back and uh, and do some teaching. Well, I guess last time I would guess I was uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Ambushed into that little r- yes. routine. <laughs> thanks, thanks to me, as you were ambushed, you know, two weeks ago. But uh, but that's uh, that's how I rolled. So you're. I was talking about I was talking about a year ago. Right. But now I think I like got a little bit better presentation later because I always knew when I listened to that over the year that I man I know this better than I tell it. I think you know so. Right. Well, it's, it's all good. It's really all there in the first show. I I I think, but that's just me there's a ton if you just listen and and stop and take notes and re-listen and go back and because this is not a overnight sensation show this is going to take you you know uh, probably uh, a couple years to really get into this not saying that you can't do this you know and and you know as you as you learn so that's where i'm at and that's what i'm doing so i'll be the witness for everyone out there who's thinking of tackling this, because I am tackling this. So. It, it truly is a, a an undertaking. I mean, it's not like you're going to read this stuff in one night or a week or a month or maybe even a year and really grasp it, because there's no doubt the statutes are written in such a... I don't know, maybe to, for lack of a better word, it's a higher form of English, I would say. And it's a, it's a more technical type of reading. It's not like reading your TV guide or a People magazine or something, you know? It, uh... It truly requires an art to understand the art form of it, and the best thing to do is you have these statutory construction manuals that are put out there, like the states, and I think uh, there's uh, James Publishing, Westlaw, they, they sell these things, and they, if you read them, it really explains how to understand and how to interpret the statutes through the definitions that are usually within the statute chapters and right. how it bangs around. In other words, one word could mean something in one chapter, but the same word could actually mean something completely different in another chapter. Right, like like I'm tackling the word taxpayer, taxpayer in the uh, Illinois compiled statutes. It's it's a hunt, you know, and uh, but but I'm gonna I'm gonna get all those definitions. So, all right. Well, I guess let's just kind of get rolling here along. Um, I get the way we all have to interpret what's going on here is uh. In England, up until probably the early 1600s and through Williams Blackstone time to the mid 1700s, most property was exclusively owned by a king, or or some arbitrary government where the title was held and uh, springs from the supreme head, whether it be the emperor, king, dictator, or whatever name that he may be known by. It was stated, and thus, it was stated that thus a home. I'm trying to read something here. It was stated thus a known fact that if the king felt it justified. He could just take the land for one baron and give the land to such other prospective baron. The king was the true and complete owner, giving him the authority to take and grant the land from the people of his kingdom to either lost or gained his favor. And that comes out of a case called McConnell versus uh, Wilcox, one Sheem, S-E-A-M, I think that's how it's pronounced, one 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 three four da um, excuse me, comma, 367 from 1837. Now, when you look at this in the... In the common sense manners is hardly what the forefathers planned for when creating the United States Constitution. If this is what the people in the mid-1700s wanted, there would have been no need to have an American Revolution, since taxes were secondary to having a sound, complete ownership of land. When the colonists were forced to pay taxes and were required to allow their homes to be occupied by soldiers, they revolted to America to avoid taxation without representation, to avoid persecution of religious freedom, to escape sovereign control and virtual dictatorship over the land and acquire a small tract of land that could be owned completely. Having broken away from the English sovereignty and establishing themselves as their own sovereigns and equally important ownership of land, the American founding fathers chose a loyal ownership of land for the system of ownership in this country. Once again, that comes from a case of Wendell versus Crandall, one NY, which would be New York, uh, 491 from 1849. 
And uh, there's many cases here. Um, Wallace versus Harmstead, 44 PA, 492 from 1830, from 1863. The American people, before developing a properly functioned, stable government, developed a stable system of land ownership, whereby the people own their land absolutely and in a manner similar to the king in common law England. As a lodium, which means or is defined as a man's own land, which he possesses merely in his own right without owing any rent or service to any superior. Now we got the definition of lodium out of the Black's Law Six Dictionary. You see that there, Rock? Yeah, I see that. I'm, I'm following along with you. Okay, well, what's the definition? Well, land held absolutely in one's right and not of any lord or superior. Land not subject to feudal duties or burdens. In a state held by absolute ownership without recognizing any superior to whom any duty is due on account thereof. Very good. Yeah. Very good. So once again, the American people's newly established sovereigns in this republic, after victory achieved during the Revolutionary War, became complete owners in their land. Behold, it's no lord superiors as sovereign freeholders in the land themselves. These freeholders in the original 13 states now held a lord of the land they possessed before the war only feudally. This new and more powerful title protected the sovereign from unwarranted intrusions and attempted takings of their land, and more importantly, it secured them a right to own land absolutely in perpetuity. And that's from Chisholm versus Georgia. Now, U.S. 4-19-1793, in this case was quoted, this last quote there, the last sentence was quoted in its case called Leading Fighter versus County of Gregory, uh, 230 Northwest 2D 114, comma, 116 from 1995. And the definition of perpetuity out of the Black Hall Dictionary, just to make sure that we all understand exactly what perpetuity means so we can put the two definitions together in a way that we can now understand what land ownership is supposed to be here in the land of the free and home of the brave is continuing forever, legally pertaining to real property. Any condition extending the inalienability in terms of a lodial title is to have the property of inalienability forever. Nothing more need be done to establish the ownership of land. Got stuff in my way here. Okay. Well, let me read the definition again. Continuing forever. This is the definition of perpetuity out of the Black's Law Dictionary, 5th edition. Continuing forever, legally pertaining to real property. Any condition extending an inalienability. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, inalienability. In terms of a lodial title, it is to have title of inalienability forever. Nothing need more done to establish the ownership of the sovereign to their land, although confirmations were usually required to avoid possible future title confrontations. And then it's stated in Waltz, Barlow versus Security Trust and Savings Bank out of 1925, quoting Matthews versus Ward, 10 Gill and J, M.D., which is a Maryland case, 443 from 1839. After the American Revolution, lands in this state, Maryland, became a loyal, subject to no tenure nor to any services incident thereto. And then we have the definition of a loyal. Go on with that one, Rock. Okay, hold on here. Having some difficulties myself here. Okay, a loyal. Uh, free, not holding of any lord or superior, owned without obligation or vassalage or fealty, the opposite of feudal. Good. And then we have a case here from Stanton versus Sullivan, 63, Rhode Island, which would be R.I., 216, comma, 7A, 696 from 1839. An estate of inheritance without condition, belonging to the owner and alienable by him, transmittal to his heirs, transmittable to his heirs absolutely and simply, such as a state as an absolute estate of perpetuity, and the largest possible estate a man can have, being in fact loyal in its nature. This type of free, simple, as thus developed as de defined characteristics. Okay, hang on a second. I hate reading these things. Yeah, that's fee, yeah, this type of fee simple, yeah. Thus, go. as thus developed, has defined characteristics. One, it is a present estate in land that is indefinite duration. Two, it is freely alienable. And three, carries with it the right of possession. And most importantly, four, the holder may use, uh, the, the holder may make use of any portion of a freehold without being beholden to any person. So I'd say that pretty well sets up what land ownership is in America, and there's no way that can be changed. There's no way that can be changed. So that's why when you hear these people talk, well, after the Civil War, this and that went down, so you don't really own your property no more, or the Lieberman Act or some gobbledygook came along, you don't own your property, or the bankruptcy in 1933 came along, you don't really own your property. It's all crap, people. There's nothing. The Constitution 
limits them from ever in any way changing that form of land ownership, no matter what gobbledygook people are telling you. So the American United States Supreme Court, the United States Supreme Court and the state courts alike have stated as a matter of fact, from the very first day, as in the case of Chisholm versus Georgia from 1793, up to and beyond leading fighters versus County of Gregory from 1975, that the United States Constitution secured the sovereign people the substantive right to own land absolutely in perpetuity, establishing ownership and possession, not subject to any lord or superior, feudal duties or burdens, and without obligation of vastage. And in doing so, a government of the people and for the people was thereby established to protect the people's sovereign right to a lodial title of land subject to no tenured as entitled law, which establishes a lodial freehold that is judgment-proof and even immune from taxation. Once again, we have another case here from 1943, United States versus Sunset Cemetery uh, Company. This type of superior title was bestowed upon the newly established American people by the founding fathers. The people were sovereigns by choice. And through this new type of land ownership, the people were sovereign freeholders or kings over their own land, beholden to no lord or superior. Bottom line. So, goes right back. you're right. Go so that goes into a lot of heated discussion today when, when people are saying, are, are you, a, you know, a sovereign? Are you, a, what are you? Are you a king? You know, are you the king of your castle? Castle doctrine. Yep. Yeah. Yep. You're the king. That's the key. That's what most people have totally been... I don't know, indoctrinated to think we're some subjects of these people that we call our government, which, you know, my thoughts on that, we don't have a government in this country. We have an organized crime syndicate <laughs> masquerading the government. Right. So that's, that's the bottom line of it all. Once people get that understand, it's easy to see how our country is being overthrown from within. This Trojan horse. Absolutely. So how, how does that kick in so far? Has anybody got a problem with that understanding at this point? Mm -hmm. it, it, it resonates with me. I mean... You know, we, we have a lot of this, I don't want to open up a can of worms by mentioning sovereign citizen, but we, we are, it says it right there, you have United States versus Sunset Cemetery Company, and it, it gives a decision, you know, the people were sovereign freeholders, or kings, they're the ones who said it, or kings over their own land, beholden to no lord or superior. I think that, that pretty much spells it out. And that's coming out of state. Supreme Court decisions and United States Supreme Court decisions. Right. Back at the early days. So there's no way we can claim, our people can claim, well, we're misinterpreting that today. That's not what they meant. Because we get a lot of that crap these days, you know, that we're just not understanding the constitutional living document, you know, it just changes and has to go as it right. flows, which of course is all crap, you the know. Living, the living, breathing document that, that always has to be changed by a uh you know, some sitting president, right. It's, yeah, because the founding fathers never thought, you know, they couldn't predict the future and all these little issues that come along, and that's really all crap. They knew exactly what was going on. That's why they wanted to make sure that the Constitution, Declaration of Independence, the, the Articles of Confederation, everything, all clearly laid out what government's limitations had to be in this country so the people could be free. Right, there's, not, not, right, there's nothing new under the sun. They, they knew. This is, a, this is timeless. So. Yes, yes it is. So, as we pick up, now we sort of work our way into basically what taxation is. Because that's another thing I noticed through uh, the, since the last show, and just people I've talked to really don't seem to understand what taxation technically is. So, when, when the Constitution was drafted, the Founding Fathers were very clear that they did not want the country to be run off the backs of the people, as, as such as their labor and their land. Once again, there had been no need for the American Revolution if that's what the American people wanted, because that's what was going on. That's what King George was doing. He's making it where every man, woman, had to give something of their, whatever, labor or personage to the king to support the monarchy. So the Founding Fathers, once again, you know, they weren't thrilled with that. So, of course, as we said earlier, they picked up the guns and started shooting redcoats. So, <laughs> oh, wait a minute. I thought that was for, uh, for duck hunting and target practice. Well, once again, they sure, yeah, they like to make it sound as though uh, they got their stupid reasons of what the constitutional provisions are all laid in play for, but that's part of the brainwashing we're dealing with. Sure, absolutely. I'd say it to me that's exactly what it is. It's all part of the brainwashing. It's all part of confusing people to what it means to be a living, breathing, carbon-based, free man American walking right. the floor. I, I think it's lame, lame duck session of Congress duck hunting. So anyway, go oh, ahead. I'd agree with that. And that goes back to um, what I've been speaking to a little bit lately about the general general welfare clause of the Constitution that you were um, alluding to there, Steve. Well, expand on that there for us, Bo. I think you have a great point there. 
Well, it's just that the um, you know general welfare clause, um, Article One, Section Nine or Eight rather, uh, Clause uh, One Two. Um, you know, uh, we, the corporations were to pay the taxes for our benefit, not the other way around. Very good, very good. And U.S. Constitution, Article One, Section Eight, Clause One, truly sets what would be considered the citizen of what the states and the U.S. government were allowed to use for the taxation purposes to fund the, gov the government. And uh, Article One, Section 8, Clause 1 clearly defines limitations as duties, imposts, and excises to be the only form of taxation to pay the debts and to provide for the needs of the government. Uh, you want to go ahead and read Article One, Section 8, Clause 1? Hold on. Oh, yeah, here it is. The Congress shall have the power to lay and collect taxes duties, imposts, and excises to pay debts and provide for the common defense and general welfare of the United States. But all duties, imposts, and excises shall be uniform throughout the United States. Okay. Now we're going to dissect the whole ideology of definitions here. So when you're reading these codes and you're even reading the Constitution, exactly what do these terms, duties, imposts, and excises mean? What exactly were they talking about? And, uh, of course, if you read the Federalist Papers, uh, this, I believe it's uh, Federalist Papers 30s up to about 37, uh, and even the Anti-Federalist Papers, they both went really, really in-depth pretty much of what the whole ideology of it was and where their agreements and disagreements were. But the neat thing is you see, and this is nowhere where they're talking about the people's land and their homes and stuff as being part of the taxation procedure. That's what I find interesting when I am reading these, those type of papers, which are like diaries almost of these people. Sure. But as we get into definitions, first thing to note is when a definition is encountered in the law, the law defines the word to purposely exclude the word from the common definition, definition, not to add to the common meaning or definition. So I'm going to repeat that one more time. This comes out of a statutory uh, uh, construction manual that I've read. And then once again, it had a note. When a definition is encountered in the law, the law defines the word to purposely exclude the word from the common definition not to add to the common meaning or definition. And here's a perfect example to me is like the word cool, okay? I mean, back in the day, pretty much, for who knows how long, the word cool meant, wow, the temperature sure is cool out here. But as we know, when we got into the 60s and things like that, that, um, that, that, Jesus, that, that was, we got into the 60s, kind of the word sort of took on another meaning almost, to where, you know, to mean something you're infatuated with, something you find amusing, like, wow, cool car dude, okay? So once again, you have the word cool that, is, that has multiple meanings. This depends on the way you're using the term to, that makes it, gives it its definition, I guess, the best way to look at it. Sure. So now, just for kicks and giggles, I was looking through American jurisprudence, and uh, there's Section 73 Amjur 2D, Section 146, is operation of legislative definitions generally. And just... Just not to get into it, I took out all the, I admitted all the case sites, but if you're interested in looking it up, go to 73 Amjur 2D, Section 146, and it's operation of legislative definitions generally. I'm getting all kinds of people playing with me here while I'm trying to do this thing. Okay, so it states clearly that when they're writing these, uh, these statutes, how the definitions have to be interpreted. So it states, the lawmaking body's own construction of its language by means of definitions of the terms employed should be followed in the interpretation of the act or section in which it relates and is intended to apply. By the same token, the court should not enlarge statutory definitions so as to include a situation or a condition which might be assumed the legislature would have covered by an enlarged definition if its existence had been contemplated. A statutory de definition supersedes the common law and commonly accepted dictionary or, ju or judicial definitions. In this regard, where the statute itself contains a definition of a word used therein, the definition controls. However, contrary to the ordinary meaning of the word it may be, and the term may not be given the meaning in which it is employed in another statute, although the two may be party material. When the legislature has a defined word which are employed in a statute, Definitions are binding on the courts since the legislature has the right to give the signification, I'm, I'm, I'm pronouncing that right, the signification as it is deemed proper to any word or phrase used by the statute, respective of the relationship of the definition to other terms. Furthermore, where a word that already has a defined, mixed, or ambiguous meaning 
It is, refined, is redefined in the statutes. The definition must be taken literally and, and literally by the courts. So now, just for kicks and giggles, we're going to kick into the definition of the real property out of the Black's Law Dictionary, 6th edition. When you, know, when you read this definition, you're going to see that not only does it have what would be considered to be the common definition of real property, but it also has what would be considered to be the commercial definition of real property. So the first part states, land, that which is incidental or pertinent to land, that which is immovable by the law, and then you have a semicolon. Anytime you read English, and especially when you're reading like a, a technical manuals of any kind, whether it's a construction manual for uh, building something or a parts of uh, technical manual for assembling something. Anytime you go up to semicolons, that means that's just a phrase, and then you're kicking into another section that's completely somewhat, uh, I won't say, disassociated with the first section, okay? If that makes any sense. Does everybody understand where I'm going with that? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So the first section of this def definition here, land, which is incidental or pertinent to land, that which is immovable by law. And it's what they're talking about there is the, the mountains, the trees, the rocks, the streams, the ponds, and possibly, uh, I, I don't know, the dirt, you know, the grass, and things like that. Now you break into the second part. Except for the purpose of sell, emblances, and growing crops, things attached to or forming part of the land, which are agreed to be served before the sale or under the contract of sale, shall be treated as goods and be governed by the regulating sales of the goods. And that comes out of a California Civil Code section, um, 658. So I don't know what that is. I'm not in California. I didn't bother reading the code. But that is the Black's Law, 6th uh, edition uh, definition of real property. And you can see how the definition in this particular case gives us both. Not only what we consider to be the common law meaning, because some people say, well, you don't own real property. Well, in the common sense you do, the same way the word cool can be used two different ways, the term real property and other terms somewhat can be used two different ways. Unless just the way we explained earlier, unless the uh, definition truly expounds on it in some form in the term, then it cannot be used to, to go beyond that. In other words, if it's not listed in statutory definition, it can't go beyond that. That's why that one phrase that I just read in the first part of this little part is when a definition is encountered by the law, the law binds the word to purposely exclude the word from the common definition, not to add to the common meaning or definition. But we'll find out as we get a little farther into this, we start getting into actually some of the statutes here, and we'll start using the, we'll start looking at the dissection definitions in the same way to where you can truly understand what the statutes are talking about. Now, key definitions. Once again, Article One, Section A, the Constitution is set for Congress by the power to lay taxes and collect, collect taxes, duties, imposts, and, and excises. So now, taxes. We have the word taxes out of the Black's Law, Sixth Edition Dictionary. Why don't somebody read that off for me? You know what? I, you're going to have to take care of that, buddy. Uh, I, I had my lag time died here, but I'll be with you oh my in God. a few minutes. Okay. Well, so we have taxes out of the six out of the six six, and it says the appointment of a tax consists in a section of the subjects to be taxed, to be taxed, and laid down the rule by which the measure contribution by each subject shall be made by the tax. Now we have taxes out of the Bouvier's Dictionary from 1856. The term is not, the term is most extended sense includes all contributions imposed by the government upon individuals, the service of the state, by whatever name they are called or known, whether by the name of a tri tribunal, impost, duties, customs, uh, aid supply, excise, or other name. And uh, several, several sections of definitions on that. Uh, my favorite one here was, of course, number two, the eighth section of the Article 1 provides the Congress of the power to lay duties, collects blah, blah, blah. Okay. Then excise taxes, a, a tax imposed on the performance of an act engaged in occupation or the enjoyment of a privilege. A tax for manufacturing, selling, producer goods, and carrying on of an occupation or activity, including various licenses and practically every internal revenue act tax except the income tax. So once again, we have truly a commercial definition of what the founding fathers laid out in the Constitution of what they mean. Excise is also defined in the movie of the Dictionary. This word is used to signify inland impositions, paid sometimes upon the consumption of commodities, and frankly upon retail sale. Impost is also defined out of the Black Salt Dictionary. as taxes, duties, imposts, levies for diverse reasons. It's the point we're trying to make here by pushing these definitions. 
they're interesting with the true line of these terms are that were laid out in the federal constitution, which also the states can go beyond the federal constitution. They can go below it somewhat, but they can never exceed the federal constitution of what or mandate was laid out through the federal constitution. The whole country could be ran off as far as the procedures for basing taxes. Duties, another nice word. It is in most usual significance that this word is synonymous of impost and customs, tax on imports. But it is sometimes used in a broader sense as including all manner of taxes, charges, or governmental impositions. Are you guys following me so far? Yeah, I'm following. We had some, like I said, I'm trying to get back online here with this lag stuff. So you're going to have to keep going. But, yeah. It's cool, but it, I mean, it's just making sense here to Absolute, you guys. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Now, just for fun, we just now pretty much covered the several different dictionaries of the definitions used in the main four words that were up in uh, Article 1, Section Clause 1, which is taxes, duties, imposts, and excises. No doubt that these are all commercial terms, okay? And that's what they managed to apply to. Now, just for kicks and giggles, we're going to kick into the Code of Federal Lake Regulations of Title 26, Volume 1, which is, which is Section 1.44-1, Period of Compilation Taxable Income. Here, and that's definition number eight, defines taxpayer. A taxpayer has the same meaning as the term person as defined in section 77018, I'm sorry, A1. Taxpayer has the same meaning as the term person as defined in section 7701A1. AG, which means in the definition, individual trust, state partnership, association, or corporation. And then it also goes on to, and also speaks of 77. 7701, 7701A14, which is any person subject to the tax. Now, once again, we've whipped out the, in, the definition of individual out of the Black's Law Dictionary, 6th edition. Once again, there's several ways this word can be used, not only in the common everyday meaning that you and I might use while we're sitting around in you know, a park someplace having talk about people, but we also have a commercial type of definition for it. And the, as of now, this term denotes a single person as distinguished from a group of a class or also very commonly a private or natural person as distinguished from a partnership, corporation, or association. But, semicolon, that is said that this restrictive significance is not necessarily inherited in the word and that it may, in proper case, include artificial persons. Now you have what we call be the objective adjective definition, would also be means pertaining or belonging to a characteristic of one single person, either in opposition of a firm, association, or corporation, or considered in his relation thereof. So the key to that that's the major is individual has multiple meanings, and in most cases the term individual is going to actually be the living carbon-based man that is a head or a CEO or a stockholder in some firm, association, corporation, or some other legal entity. Now we're going to go directly into 26 U.S.C., uh, 26, okay, section 7701, and just look at the same definitions that we pretty much just went through here in the other section. It makes it clear, though, that when using this title, we're not otherwise distinctly or expressively manifestly incompatible with the intent thereof. The term person shall be construed to mean and include an individual, trust, estate, partnership, association, company, or corporation. And then 14, the term taxpayer means any person subject to the internal revenue tax. Now we're going to buzz into Florida statutes, and we're going to go to the definition section there under Florida Statutes 192, General Provisions. And it states at the very top of 192.01, Definitions. The following definition shall apply in the imposition of alimony taxes. Here they define taxpayer number 13, means the person or other legal entity in whose name property is assessed, including an agent of a timeshare holder. Um, let me spin the next page here where we go back. Okay, now, these are only two places in the Florida statutes that I could find the term taxpayer defined, okay? Right. After going through. Yeah, and I'm, and I'm back with it, so we're, we're... Okay. Okay, let me get back well, to the I'm, I was I'm running into the same challenge, you know, with Illinois. You know, everybody's got to find out in their own state. they got to do the legwork. they got to cross-reference, you know, hit, hit the property tax, uh, definition from the, you know, uh, from every point of view, assessor, appraiser, um, the the county treasury uh, site, and then go look at the new code and, and cross-reference 
all these definitions, you're going to get a bunch of definitions, all the way up to the uh, state constitution. So you got to get all those, all those definitions. Yeah, and the neat thing is you find out they're all pretty much the same, whether it's the Internal Revenue Code definition of taxpayer person or your state statute revenue code person or taxpayer. Yeah, and well, I'm just, maybe I'm just new to this, and I, the challenge is, seems ominous, but I mean, I'll get it. I'll get it sooner or later. It's just a lot of hunting, but, you know, it, it can be done. So that's what I'm doing, and I'll be able to, people will be able to track with me if they just go to my uh, Facebook page, you know, Rockland Manzetti on Facebook, and uh, they'll be able to see um, how I'm uh, tracking along with this. So. It took me two years just to get a grip of it, and I still read this stuff and still catch things in it right, I didn't catch right, five or six, right. seven years ago. You can't be in any hurry. I mean, uh, you know, truth is not a race, so. Amen. So we'll kind of kick back up here. Florida Statutes 192, General Decisions, defines taxpayer as a person or own legal entity. And then uh, when you're in the Florida Statutes 198, which is the tax, the state taxes section, they define person to mean persons, corporations, association joint stock companies and business trust. So once again, when you're reading back, the here means person, so you have to basically take that word person and put the term person out of this other chapter to where when you're reading the first one, it says taxpayer means the, instead of take the word and replace it, the person word with corporation, association, joint stock companies and business trust, or other legal entities. That gives you the definition of taxpayer. And it's very important that people understand that. Because the key is you have to understand whether or not you're a taxpayer. Right. Now we get into the Florida, the Florida Administrative Code. Once again, Florida Administrative Code 12D is, the, is technically the uh, property appraiser, tax collectors may define codes of how they have to set up what they do to follow within the provisions of the legislative and active statutes. But they once again defines person here under 12D-2001 definition, saying the following definitions shall apply to property assessed by the department. Person, as defined in Section 101, Florida Statutes, and including any company, unless otherwise specifically provided, the word company may be used interchangeably with the word person. Uh, you notice I slowed that down, so I want to make sure that people caught this. They're telling you right here in their own constructive codes of how they interpret their taxing provisions that the word person and company are to be used interchangeably. So when you see person, you think company. When you see company, you think person. Right. And just to help you out here in the Florida Statutes uh, 1011, I'm sorry, 1-01 definitions, meant to clearly construe these statutes, every word and phrase of your part shall be within the context permitted. The word person includes individual children, firms, associations, joint stock ventures, partnerships, estate, trusts, business trusts, syndicates, fiduciaries, corporations, and all other groups or combinations. Now, people go, hey, children, what's that children thing all about? Once again, when you go through and look through my corporate uh, charter construction manuals, children are considered to be under corporation uh, lingo as the offspring of the main corporations. Wow. Make sure people understand it. That's yeah, that's, that's pretty uh, insightful there. Say that again about children? Well, the term children, when used in corporate charter construction type of uh, manuals and things, the way they work is all children are technically offsprings of the main corporation, like McDonald's. They have their main wherever it's at, I'm not sure, but all the little McDonald's locations on every corner are considered the children, the offspring of the corporation. Right. So it's important that you understand it to where, like I say, the average guy wants to read this stuff and think personal. Well, that means me, individual. That's me. Oh, my children. Okay, and then firms association. Once again, when you read to the statutory um, construction manuals, it makes it clear that the classification. You can't just, like, you just can't say fruits or apples and, uh, uh, I'm sorry, what am I saying? Yeah, okay, apples and uh, cherries and berries and things, and then throw oranges in there. Oranges are, are um, fruits. They're not um, they're not. I'm sorry. Am I saying this right? I don't think I got this right. I'm trying to. I'm trying to get the difference between what would be citrus fruits, I guess, and then vegetables. There you go. So in other words, you wouldn't want it to where it says grapefruits, tangerines, oranges, and then have something like tomatoes in there. That would not be a correct grouping of classification. Right. And just because the statute put tomato there when it was talking about fruits, there's no way tomato would ever fit there. So when you're reading statutes, you have to look at the same thing. We look at the person, individual, and things like that. That there's no way that you can add that and tack it down to firms, association, joint ventures, partnerships, state trust, and all that 
legal entity stuff, okay? Right. So now we're going to move on to the Black's Law Dictionary definition of person. Are you guys on that one with me? Um, yeah. I got seventh here, if you want to. And I also put up, uh, did we cover, we don't think we did, um, subject and matter. Those were words that come up in our earlier definitions, but we should go on to person. I'm, I'm and, tracking with you, so I'm right here. And, and folks, again, okay. if you can hold your calls to the uh, second hour, uh, we'll be taking calls then. So uh, right now we're just trying to get uh, a good foundation here, have your questions ready, and we'll take questions and get through those as quickly as possible in the middle of the second hour. Okay. okay. So now we have the Black's Law Dictionary of Person, where once again, they're almost telling you the exact same thing. In the general usage, a human being or a natural person. Though by statute, term may include labor organizations, partnerships, associations, corporations, legal representatives, trustees, blah, 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 blah. And then, there's a, and then once again, there's tons of case law on this, too. And I just threw one out here just for kicks and giggles, which was the most recent one out of 1979. Wilson versus Omaha Indian Tribe, 442 U.S., 653, 667 from 1979. In the common usage, the term person does not include the sovereign. And statutes employing the word are ordinarily construed to exclude it. So I just want to make sure that people, when they're reading these statutes, they don't get caught up in the fact that, that the term person and individual and these little terms and even taxpayer, it has to completely define you. In other words, if the taxpayer really meant every man and woman in the country, a taxpayer would just have to have the people. That's the only, word, that's the only definition you need of a taxpayer in order to... Uh, to make it clear that this taxpayer is everybody that walks, crawls, breathes, right. and with some form on the earth, you know? Well, what I'm seeing is this taxpayer means any corporation, you know, subject to the imposed tax, you know, by its codes. So. Yeah, yeah, according to the, even the revenue code there, that's why I read those off. And once again, we have the other place in the Florida statutes under the income tax code, which is Florida Statutes 2003. Taxpayer means any corporation subject to tax imposed by this code and includes all corporations for which consolidated return is filed under 220.131. And that always, you know, is related to the, the CITUS or CITUS, you know, the location or, or place of uh, business, you know, or the right or power to tax it. Um, or the, I just remember is this, it, are you exercising um, a right or privilege? Or no, are you exercising a taxable privilege? you got to ask yourself. Is there commercial use? going on. It's a no-brainer for me, you know, so. Well, I'm hoping most people catch this once they kind of get through this little thing here. They'll be able to step back and go, damn, that was kidding. That makes a lot of sense, you know. Well, right. That's it goes back to you have a substantive right, you know. You you need a place to, you know, eat, pee, <laughs> sleep, poop, and play. That can oh, happen. Right. There's no commercial activity going on there. There's no taxable Privilege. There is no commerce. It's like they have no authority. They cannot assess when they have no authority. They certainly cannot bring forth a return that is supposed to be filed by you for having an occupational license at, at your home or a business license at your home or having a sign out front that has um, an LLC attached to it or a corporation. So if there's no return, there's no assessment, there's no authority, get the hell off my land. <laughs> Bottom line. It's a no-brainer. Well, it's a no-brainer. Well, the key is you have to have the tools. It's great to be able to say that to one of them, but you've got to back it up, and if you end up in court, you're going to have to do it with their codes and their rules and their statutes. Whether you like it or not, it's code pleading, fact pleading. That's what the court systems are. Whether you like it or not, that's what it is. And if you can't do it very well, you're not going to win. That's what it boils down to. Right. That's why it's very key that you're able to understand how to interpret these statutes, understand what the definitions mean, and understand how to uh, litigate them right. when it comes to your time. You're just going to have to do some legwork. You're going to have to, to read. I mean, I've been doing this pretty much, you know, three and a half years getting my feet wet, and, and this is where I'm at after three and a half years. But I can turn around. You know, I got that Facebook page. Bo has got his YouTube channel, Bo Knows Entertainment. We're getting this word out to people, we're giving them tools, resources, information. We, we want, uh, you know, we could shut these guys down at the county level, just people going in there and raising all these issues. 
Yeah, yeah, that's basically what it's all about. If you can get in their face and you're able to talk educatedly about statute provisions, whatever it is they're supposed to be doing, and you can show that they're in noncompliance right in their face, they usually will back down. But you just can't go walking and go, hey, my property is supposed to be with the actual, take it off. They're going to say, yeah, see you in court, bub. You know, that's because they, they know you don't know what you're doing. And I'll tell you from something, from dealing with these property appraisers I've dealt with, most of them do not understand how this stuff works either. They were just elected. And then they walk into a, a office full of 20 or so people that have been there for 30 years going, oh, here's what we do. We do this, we do this, and you decide yeah. yourself, that's your job, you know? Right. That's, not, that's what they're doing. I know that's what they're doing because the few that I've had a chance to talk to that I that made it clear that they knew what was going on, I got had great success with. But then you had some of these ones that only been around for a year or two, and you could see that that they were, you know, they were totally amazed. They'd never seen this stuff before. They didn't understand it this way. Well, I look at it this way. You get a taste of truth, you, you, you want more. You know, you always want more. So that, that's where I'm at. The, when, when you read something and say, wait a minute, they're getting away with murder here, fraud, you know, and uh, we got to put a stop to that. And it's a, it's a lie to live a lie. Why would you, why would you pay anything that you're not, uh, you know, supposed to pay? It's just, it's mind-boggling to me. Well, we'll move along here. Go ahead and um, read the uh, Black's Law Dictionaries of Citus and Business Citus there. Okay, um, here we go. Citus, a location or place of crime or business, or the right or power to tax it. Citus of property, for tax purposes, is determined by whether the taxing state has sufficient contact with personal property sought to be taxed to justify in fairness the particular tax. And that's from a case, Town of... Katie versus Alexander Construction Company. Uh, and then we have business situs, Black's Law 6 down here again. Uh, a situs acquired for tax purposes by one who has carried on business in the state more or less permanent in its nature. A situs arising when notes, mortgages, tax sales certificates, and like are brought into the state for something more than a temporary purpose and are devoted to some business use there and thus become incorporated with the property of the state for revenue purpose. A situs arising where possession and control of property right has been localized in some independent business or investment away from owner's domicile so that its substantial use and value primarily attached to it and become an asset of the outside business. And that's state versus Atlantic oil producing company. That's one reason why I like the Black Salt Dictionary. Most all of them are annotated. Compared yeah. to the newer dictionaries, don't have annotations like that anymore. So it's just declared that somewhere along the line, a court set what this is all about. Well, and here, here, let me zoom in on my favorite, personal favorite, ad valorem tax, Black's <laughs> Law. According to value, a tax levied on property or an article of commerce in proportion to its value as determined by assessment or appraisal. Uh, Callaway versus City of Overland Park. Um, it, it says right there. A tax living on property or an article of commerce. So once again, property and commerce or an article of commerce. Very good. Now we have the bloody Bouvier's Dictionary once again. We're back. This is back in 1856, so no one can say, well, it meant something different than, than it does now. Once again, Latin term as used in commerce in reference to certain duties. Have we all heard that word before anywhere? Right called avalorum duties, which are levied on commodities, a commercial term once again, at certain rates per centum on their value. So that's, so once again, from 1856 to, uh, I think, Black Falls, 1991, 1992. Right. I, so, I, I just remember it as an IED. We all hear IED on the, in the news as an improvised explosive device. I just liken it to imposts, excises, and duties. They're blowing us up with all their uh, taxes. so Very good. Very good. So now the key is, is uh, w once again, I guess, uh, because, oh, well, I don't know why I threw this little case in there, but here's something I found interesting when I was reading through some cases. They had this Jones versus United States, where uh, I guess a guy burned his house down, and somebody was trying to sue him and some form for it, but the court made it clear that, because an owner-occupied residence not used for any commercial purpose does not qualify as property used in commerce or commerce-affecting activity. Arson of such a dwelling is not subject to prosecution. That's funny. Now, that's out of year 2000. So, uh, yeah, the key I'm making is, uh, 
I mean, you, you can burn your property down. No one can even prosecute you for that. It was your own home, your own house. Remember uh, Jeremiah Johnson, the movie, which yeah. I thought was interesting. Who was sending him an Avalorum tax statement for that cabin up in the mountains? And then, of course, he burnt it down when I think the kid and the, the woman got uh, murdered by the Indians, right? Right. Okay, so just something I just wanted to touch on just to help everyone kind of understand there is a separation. You have the commercial sector, which government's allowed to control and tax, you have the private sector, which government's not supposed to be interfering with you, not one iota. Even the Florida Constitution, Article 1, Section 23, states that all men have the right to be, you know, if, uh, uh, governments cannot intrude in their private personal lives. That's basically what it says. I don't have it up in front of me, but I was just making the point that even our state constitution makes it clear that government has no authority over your private life. And what goes on in your home, in your front yard, in your backyard, what color you paint your house is all part of your private life. So government can have no interference with that at all. Yeah, so now we got right. They can't interfere with my monkey business. They have no jurisdiction, no authority. So, amen. One way amen. to look at it. It's it's not commercial people. You know, you have a a substantive right. You you have an unalienable right to live your life. Period. Yes, sir. So now, remember, Avalorum tax definitions, and now we got the property tax. Term property tax out of the Black's Law 6th edition. Generic term describing a tax levied on the basis of the value of either personal or real property owned by the taxpayer. Okay? Right. So we just want to make sure, because as we get farther into this, you're going to find the uh, Florida statutes makes it clear along the line that property tax and Avalorum tax are basically synonymous with each other. So it's important that we understand that because this is going to mean something when it comes to understanding how to, once again, interpret your state revenue code. Now, here's something else I like is the actual market value. This is what your property appraiser is going to tell you that he's doing to levy this Avalorum tax on your property is how much it would bring on the market. So once again, we're going to show some more fraud here by this definition makes it very clear. Actual market value is defined by the Black Salt Dictionary Sex Edition. In custom laws... The price at which a merchandise is freely offered for sale are all purchasers. The price which the manufacturer owner would have received for merchandise sold in the ordinary course of trade in the usual wholesale quantities. <laughs> now let's read this one more time because this is what it says. Even that little female you sent me out of Illinois was talking about how they do their home value, how they do their home property tax on your market value, right? Right. So here is the legal definition of that term. We'll read it one more time. In custom laws, the price at which merchandise is freely offered for sale to all purchasers, the price which the manufacturer or owner would have received for merchandise sold in the ordinary course.